This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. All right, y'all. This is a new one. This is Breaking Normal, even for Breaking Normal. Um, because, A, this is a sponsored podcast, which, hey, let's celebrate. Hey, clap your hands, snap your fingers, go rate, subscribe, and review this podcast because this will keep amplifying the message of Breaking Normal. And it's sponsored by Gainswave. Um, they approached me with wanting to sponsor a treatment for me um, of the Gainswave treatment. And I did not feel aligned with that as much as I felt like I want to learn about this. I want to make it a topic. Men's sexual health, come on. That's a taboo topic that deserves more attention. And it's amazing that it's a taboo topic. I'm like, that shocks me sometimes. And that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, from my understanding, the Gaines Wave is a treatment, or we'll get more to exactly what that is, but it involves a treatment of getting uh, someone's penis shocked with sound waves in order to have a better um, erectile function. <laughs> that's a, that's that sums it up pretty quick. <laughs> okay, and I'm here, which is we we just met like ten or fifteen minutes ago with Dr. Brian Kansas from Urology Austin, and uh, yeah, I think we're gonna we it's pretty clear we're gonna have fun on this podcast. So hold on to your pants, and let's talk about what's going on below the pants. Let's do it. All right, all right. Um, firstly, let's just g- jump right off with what. Gainswave wanted us to talk about, and I would love if you have anything you want to add to this or take away from it or interject, please do, Dr. Kansas. Will do. Um, interesting directions. 50% of men over 50 years of age have ED. That's true, and so varying forms, and you know, when I see patients in the office, I just let them know that there are a lot of options for fixing that issue. They don't have to live like that. Okay, so ED, if, if anyone's confused, is er, stands for erectile dysfunction. Correct. Uh, what is erectile dysfunction exactly? So erectile dysfunction, it's really defined as an uh, erectile quality that is not satisfactory to the patient or to the partner. Um, basically, the way that I define it is not being able to achieve or maintain an erection long enough to complete intercourse. Okay, here, this is going to, I love this, because first of all, the first definition is so open-ended, it seems like anyone could diagnose themselves with it. Well, and that's the thing, is I have to feel that out. Sometimes I have guys that come in, you know, here's a for instance, uh, not to make it, I'll, I'll just give you a bunch of stories from my past uh, uh, of the career. Um, a guy that comes in and says, you know, hey, I have erectile dysfunction, and, you know, this guy's in great shape, he's 35, 38 years old, and, and I say, well, what's what's the issue? You have trouble getting or maintaining? No, it's not the issue. Well, you know, what's the issue? Um, well, I used to be able to have sex with my girlfriend eight times a day. Now I can only do it five. And that guy, I tell him, you know, look, you're you're still far above the normal realm of what is acceptable, and I don't think you have to worry too much about this at this point. Why don't you come see me in about 10 years, <laughs> and we'll talk a little bit more. Oh, man. And so that's, that's in the eye of the beholder, like that particular person. <laughs> great, great. And, and this is as we – I haven't even finished the first sentence of Interesting Directions. And I just want to be uh, – to give people some clarity – you're a urologist, correct? Yes. And what exactly, what does that mean? So a urologist is actually, we're trained to do surgery on the entire urinary tract, which includes the kidneys, the adrenal glands, 
the ureters, which are the tubes that go from the kidneys down to the bladder, the bladder, the prostate, and the external genitals. So we are surgeons for that, but we take care of a little bit more than that. Um, we're not just surgeons, but we do a lot of clinical-based uh, uh, medicine as well, taking care of all of those issues. And uh, what's your particular passion in this field? So what has happened over the course of my career is I've become kind of the expert in men's health for my practice and for the area, uh, and, and for the Austin area. So I do a lot of uh, erectile dysfunction, complex erectile dysfunction, uh, male incontinence, and uh, low testosterone treatments. Um, so I see probably 40 to 50% of my practice is that. Um, including young guys or older guys. Uh, I offer every treatment there is for erectile dysfunction. I put in 60 to 80 penile implants a year, which are, you know, pump-up devices that are put inside to help people um, do a lot of incontinence procedures as well. What's that last procedure, incontinence? So incontinence is often, it's something that we see after somebody's had their prostate removed for prostate cancer. Um, that's most of the time what it is, but that's leaking urine. And then a penile pump is implanted where in the So body? I put the, uh, I go above the penis, but I uh, go down to the uh, penis itself, open that. I put two cylinders inside the shaft of the penis, a pump in the scrotum, and a reservoir that goes into the groin. And uh, once they have healed and can pump the device up, they squeeze the little pump in the scrotum about 10, 12, 14 times, and it gives them an erection for however long they want. When they don't want it anymore, they squeeze another button, and it goes down. They walk around with a normal, soft-looking penis. The, but what's the device they're pushing? So it's, it's the pump that's connected to the device. I wish I had my model. I should have brought it with me. Um, but so it's actually, a device that's attached to them? It's no, not no, like no. It's, it's on the inside. Everything's on the inside. Okay, and this then there's another thing from the outside that they push. Uh, or no. do they push something in the So their they're body? squeezing through the scrotum. So oh. the pump is located inside the oh, scrotum, wow. almost like a third testicle. Wow, and Which so they push that button, and that, wow, okay, so yeah, this is... And they, they often ask me, you know, what if I squeeze my testicle? And I say, well, you'll stop <laughs> very fast. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not going to make your penis go up. It's going to make your hair flip up, maybe. Wow, <laughs> wow, this is edutaining for sure already. Um, and let's make this personal for me, so while I have you, what a great opportunity... I mentioned uh, we were talking about bananas <laughs> before we started the podcast. Of is course, that a, is that a urology joke? Uh, yeah. <laughs> is that is that a banana in your pocket? Yeah, actually, it is a banana in my pocket. <laughs> yeah, at that point, there was it's a my point, implant. <laughs> and there was a point in my life where I was probably close to carrying bananas in my pocket because I was eating a raw vegan diet, and we were sort of the stars in this movie movement known as like thirty bananas a day, and it was a way of eating and living, and. Um, what happened? I ate a raw vegan diet, basically, for about an extended period of time, six to seven months. And I went to a festival with this this culture. And I know, first of all, I was very suspicious of what I would say would be the lack of sexual energy, um, especially for a group this age and Young. Yeah, yeah. vibrant. It was kind of like a spring break, but instead of being sexual, it was more like comparing fruits, actually. <laughs> and... Um, and then I, I realized, I, I remembered, like, I haven't gotten morning wood in a long time. I'm like, man, I haven't gotten morning wood in so long. 
and I went to the doctor and I was like getting my blood test and they I said I wanted my testosterone. She's like, Oh, you don't need a testosterone, you're like twenty something, you're good. And I'm like, No, I think I wanna get that. She's like, It's extra money. I'm like, Okay, that's fine, let's just do it. And sure enough it came out like at one eighty nine or something. Pretty dismal. Yeah, she, yeah. And she said, like, that's, like, the equivalent to, like, about an 88-year-old man. <laughs> and so the next day I ate salmon. I mm-hmm. ate salmon. And I, the next morning I woke up with morning wood, mm-hmm. and I felt so different. I yeah. felt, like, sharper. So my conclusion, I don't know if it's, like, a cholesterol being a precursor to testosterone, um, but it sounds like this is something you're quite familiar with. So what happened from your perspective? Yeah, basically you had – I mean, if, I think a raw vegan diet is very good for you from a cardiac perspective. But from a uh, building block pers- perspective from a, a lot of different things, I mean, even just on a cellular level, you need a certain amount of cholesterol to build those things. Um, testosterone is one of the first things that will kind of get shut off because you're not – you don't need it. You know, nobody's ever died of low testosterone. They just kind of feel like they're going to die. They feel terrible. Um, but, yeah, no, basically – Basically, you had uh, you had dropped your building blocks down to a point where you didn't have cholesterol to build testosterone, and it's not surprising to me. You take in a little protein, a uh, little animal protein, and it fires back up pretty quickly, especially when you were super young. And, and this is I'm happy you bring it up, like the cardiovascular advantage of a raw vegan diet, or maybe a cleansing advantage from my perspective. Um, but I still notice this to this day. It's like when I, I purposefully will load up on it's like duck or fat and uh, <laughs> so it's raw, like very uncooked, like or very close to raw, like seared bison, and I feel jacked up. And I can't tell how much of it's from a placebo, and it definitely shows up in my under my pants too. <laughs> Is that the, like do you You're looking in your pants? At the time? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm married to no. a beautiful queen, and I get to. I get to take note of what's going on in my body in that way yeah. on a regular. It's, you know, it's on a day-to-day basis, it's hard for me to explain that. I mean, it definitely the huge shift is certainly explainable. You know, there's a lot of things that are, you know, there's a lot of things that are variable. Okay, okay, awesome, thank you. Um, and then uh, let's go back to the... We should, uh, we, we should check your testosterone, like, before you eat bison, and then an hour after and see where it is. I totally be an agree. interesting experiment. How do I do? How do we do that? Come, but see, is it blood? Like how, yeah, how, is yeah what I would do is I could give you, like, two lab slips, and then you go in, and you have it drawn, and then you go eat a bunch of bison and come back a couple hours later and have it drawn again see where it is. How old are you now? Oh man, this is so funny because I've dis- I, so I have this idea. Of, like, <laughs> I'm only keeping one secret in my life, and it's my age. Okay, All right, let me. Um, hmm. <laughs> Are you uh, below or above forty, or can you not? Answer I'll say that? below. Okay, say below. all right. So yeah, you that. lose. So there's a variability when you're typically when you're under forty, you'll have what's called a uh, a diurnal variation of testosterone, and your testosterone's highest in the morning, and it goes down. You pretty much lose that after about forty or forty-five. Um, and so you would want to check a morning testosterone to see the highest. Um, for you, yours should be continuing to go down. So if we threw in the bison later on in the day and it spikes it, we would have our answer. Then we should patent it and sell bison for testosterone. Get well, yours. Or uh, <laughs> bison for boners. Bison for boners. See, man, see, I need to come up with that stuff. Well, how that's did, what I was thinking for the title of this video. Come on. It might be, we'll see if it comes to be true, biohacking for boners <laughs> over beer. Over beer. <laughs> I Breaking will point normal. out I, am not, I have a water. 
Yeah, he, yep, I offered him a beer, and he said, what I remember is he got over hangovers. <laughs> I am done with hangovers. <laughs> you, at some point in your life, you'll, you'll get to that too, maybe. Uh, I like that. Thank you for the maybe. Thank mm. you for the maybe. Maybe. Um, so back to the talking <laughs> notes here, uh, which are awesome, because they, they bring uh, – I really want to talk about what they want us to talk about. And it says, men with uh, erectile dysfunction are under the impression that asking for help when it comes to this department makes them less manly. Is this something you feel like on a psychological level where you're kind of coaching someone to be like, hey, it's okay? Like, Yeah, no, I do I do play counselor a lot, you know, and uh, a lot of times the guys that come to see me are encouraged to come in uh, by their wives because, I mean, they're embarrassed, you know, they have a little bit of shame about it, you know. I should be better than this. I should be treating my wife better than this, etc. So you do play a little bit of uh, of counselor, but by, typically by the time they walk out of the room with me, they say, "Wow, that was I, I can't believe how easy you made that." Which of course, I mean, I do it for a living, so I sure hope I can talk about it pretty uh, pretty easily. But you know, the bottom line is, is you know, guys need to know that there's absolutely something out there. It's super common. You know, like us, you know, like we said earlier, half of guys, about half of guys over fifty, will uh, have some form of erectile dysfunction and it's you know there's inexpensive uh, options out there to help people uh, with these things uh, you know it doesn't have to cost an arm and a leg at all and I'm excited to get to what gains wave exactly is but in the meantime I just want to keep getting to know each other publicly and because you said like you make it so easy I, I want to go right I want to explore all like the concerns I've had with my penis um, since I've probably been a teenager real quickly if that's cool with you Laid on me. I remember, I remember the there was at first I was being concerned about these little like I guess they're hair follicles now, but like bumps on my scrotum. Okay. And I got paranoid about that. Yeah, it kind of looks like uh, chicken skin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly all that they are: is little hair follicles. It's the same in everybody. Um, some people are more pronounced than others, but it's normal. Cool. Yep. And I think I've been I've been told this. I don't think there's anything be there's not going to be anything I've. M- not talk to someone about before but i want to honor you i agree that you're really good at what you do from what i've experienced so far and that's communicating for one so it's an honor to be here with you um next one would be like when i feel around my balls um like squiggly things they feel very squiggly Right. So what you have is overlying the testicle, you have what's called the epididymis, which is a transport tubule for sperm. So the sperm is made in the testicle and it comes out of the epididymis and then ends up going into the vas deferens. You've heard of people getting a vasectomy before. That's what that's, that is struck. Uh, I'm sorry, that structure is what's cut during a vasectomy to cut the sperm flow off. And that eventually goes through the pelvis and into the ejaculatory duct. So sperm can come out with your ejaculate fluid. The ejaculate fluid is made uh, completely by the prostate. So 97% of what you see come out at orgasm is made by the prostate and it's just supportive fluid. Only a very small percentage is actually sperm. Wow, that's amazing. So, and this is now, now we're getting to an esoteric level for me. So 1% of that semen fluid is probably sperm I say three, but that's probably very generous. It probably is 1% or even less than that. Okay, so it's like zero to two, or something to two percent. It's it's microscopic. So when guys come and get a vasectomy, they ask, is is my ejaculate going to change? And I I tell them, there's no way you will be able to tell the difference unless you whip out a microscope and look at it under the microscope. So it's a very, very tiny percentage. Wow. 
And then out, how many sperm? Do you know what what like the rough numbers of these? How many mm-hmm. s- viable sperm are in an uh, average in ejaculate? An ejaculate? So, you know, we we talk about fertility issues, and you know, somebody who's good and fertile will have about a hundred million sperm per cc. An average ejaculate volume is about three to five cc. So there's three to five hundred uh, million sperm per cc. A lot. And that's and one is what it makes takes a new. Precisely life. one. It's uh, sometimes it's interesting to see what we see for pe- for couples that are infertile, because uh, infertility is forty uh, percent male factor, forty percent female factor, twenty percent both, or we really just don't know. And sometimes I see guys for infertility, and I look at I'll get a semen a semen analysis on them, and they've got you know one hundred and seventy five million sperm per cc, and they've got an eight cc ejaculate, and I look at them and I say, you should be able to walk past your wife in the hall and get her pregnant like this. And it, most of the time when they're uh, coming to see in that situation, they're coming to get checked out and make sure that there's no issue uh, moving forward. Okay. And then th- now for my other personal question, I had a feeling that this one's going to get you. I think I'm, I don't know if you're going to have a clear answer. When I once said this to the, I, I remember asking a doctor before and they were like, they just guessed. When if I continue stimulating myself mm-hmm. after ejaculating, mm-hmm. I ha- like feel an uncontrollable urge to pee. Okay. I actually, I, it's a way I would pee after having sex, basically. Okay. So what you're doing there is, so when you have an orgasm, you have uh, stimulation and relaxation of the entire pelvic floor. So recognize that the pelvis is a bowl. It's bones lined with muscle, and the bladder and prostate are drop down in there connecting to the penis okay um i often hear that people can uh, older gentlemen you know 50s 60s that have a large prostate they say they pee much better after sex and they and so that's stimulation everything relaxes so basically what you're doing there is you have figured out a way to get you to, to get yourself to relax your pelvic floor in order to pee are you saying it, it you pee easier? Like it's no, I would like. I it was a concern. I actually think when I first asked the doctor, it was a concern because I'm like, what if I was like having a bad point, like getting a hand job or something, and she kept going, and oh, then I just started I peeing. Oh. It was like almost. It feels like almost uncontrollable. Hmm. That's pretty tough to explain. Let's see. Let's see if let's see if he can come uh, stimulate you, and let's see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> he just ran out of the room. <laughs> um, so what I remember him, him so, saying is like, know, there might be a nerve somehow, so, nerve to my prostate or my bladder, like some nerve so, to my bladder. So also realize, so you have the uh, well. So what he's ta- what he's describing to you is, are you stimulating something that's making the bladder contract? You know, there's really nothing in the external genitals that's going to do that. Um, it really has to do with pulsations of the pelvic floor. Um, but you have to realize that you've got a sphincter mechanism that is on the outside of that, and so it would be pretty unusual for you to leak, although anything can happen. I, have it, you, I mean, have it, you ever, no, have you ever had leakage happened. before? No, okay. it ha- it's not leakage. It's more that, like... <laughs> I can re- I can get a nice for- forceful pee if I it's like after being ejaculate maybe even for up to like a minute to three mm-hmm. if I continue to try to like have s- I haven't tried to have sex in that state exactly <laughs> but more I've done it on purpose to uh, masturbate if like the 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 motion of masturbation but it would make me pee 
It was, I don't, yeah, it's... Now I'm wondering I mean, if the, this is like the, a psychological thing. I'm like, what's going on the here? Be, the best thing I can think of is that you're just, uh, you're completely relaxing your pelvic floor, and I'm trying to think of a mechanism that would, uh, I can't think of a mechanism that would, uh, that would uh, create a bladder contraction in that situation. It's unusual. Well, there's one thing to right, say I'm gonna here. I have to do some research, man. Now you're making me go do homework. Well, uh, this is breaking normal, and I've been known to do that in many facets. And I will. And this is a great opportunity. Does anyone else that's listening to this can they relate to it? Leave a comment. <laughs> well, you might not want to leave a comment on the, the reviews. <laughs> do, an, do an anonymous comment. Yeah, send me an Instagram message. Email me, <laughs> Daniel at Breaking Normal. Let's find out. Let's find out if someone else can do this trick. Um, <laughs> Party trick. <laughs> Oh, yeah, he says they, as a result, they place themselves in self-imposed prisons. These people that are not talking about it because they're scared of being less manly. Relationships may suffer. Confidence dwindles and depression. Is that something that you see? Do you see people getting depressed and maybe really a downward spiral from not addressing this? They they really do, and it's uh, typically it's not – you know, real serious, but it, it's it definitely uh, leads to relationship problems. Um, most of the time, the the relationship problem is not as bad as uh, some guys will make it out to be. Um, you know, the although sometimes it's worse than they make it out to be. I think probably the best uh, example of depression that I've ever seen was a gentleman that came to me, uh, and he had something called Peyronie's disease, which is a curvature of the penis. It's actually rather common. About 15% of the population, at least, because that's what we know about, has uh, curvature of the penis. And a slight curvature, that's not that big of a deal. But if you have a 75 or a 90-degree curve of the penis, it's it's not going to work. It's not going to go into anything. Um, this gentleman had seen another urologist in town, and the plan was for him to take some oral medication for a year and then come back and see him. So this guy religiously went and took his oral medications that I never prescribed because they really don't work, to be honest with you. Um, and he saw him after a year, and he said, you know, hey, it's still the same. What are we going to do? And he said, let's try it for another year. And so guy decided to have another opinion, so he came to see me, and I went and I was able to repair it surgically because it's one of the things that I do. And... Uh, when I met him, he was on three antidepressants and was actively seeing a therapist once or twice a week, depending on how often he could get there. And it was all related to his inability to have sex with his wife. And once we fixed him, he um, got off of all of his antidepressants, finished up with his therapist, and life was good again. He made, he did some sort of brickwork, and he made me this brick. And in it is some sort of curved sea animal that's an inlay in it. And he gave that to me as a gift, and it sits on the hearth of our outside fireplace to this day. That was like 10 years ago. So every time I see that thing, I think of that guy. But, yeah, it was a big difference in that in the poor guy's life, you know, uh, once we could uh, fix that for him. So it was, it was really good for him. Wow. Yeah, that's a really uh, a line story. Thank you for sharing that. Um yeah, and they, they mention, you know, men – when you say oral medications, they're saying that a gains wave here is claiming men with certain medical conditions that once relied upon, like Cialis or Viagra, may no longer be able to utilize those pills. So this – that was a different one, uh, something that is – was sort of made for Peyronie's, but it doesn't work. It's called Pataba or Potassium Benzoate. So the oral medications that we're talking about here are for erectile dysfunction. So when we talk about erectile dysfunction – you know, what I tell guys is all that an erection is is more blood flow in, 
arteries, then out veins equals erection. As everyone ages, the small muscles that pinch off the veins when you start to get an erection, in order to prevent the outflow, they atrophy. So they allow outflow more robustly than they should, and so therefore you can't keep the penis filled. So it also applies to young guys. When I see a 22-year-old with erectile dysfunction, that guy has something called venous leak almost every time, and it's something that you can prove with Doppler ultrasound in the office, which I do from time to time. Um, but all that we want to do is try to overcome that leak, and of course there's a lot of other reasons for erectile dysfunction, diabetes, hypertension, uh, blood pressure medications, uh, vascular disease, having had pelvic surgery like a radical prostatectomy or taking, the taking out the bladder and the prostate, etc. But all that we want to do is we want to try to overcome that leak and try to create more vascular inflow arterial-wise. Uh, medications like um, Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, Stendra, Staxin, there's five on the market. Um, they're all pretty much going generic now, so they can all get can get them pretty cheap at this point. Um, they're, they're vasodilators. And so what they do is they create more arterial flow. In fact, Viagra was uh, originally in, uh, invented uh, for pulmonary, pulmonary hypertension in order to help people with lung issues. In fact, my wife is a neonatologist, and they actually send babies home with pulmonary hypertension on Viagra. So the joke is that their diaper doesn't fit anymore. <laughs> that joke, that joke. I have a feeling many people are chuckling on that oh, one. Yeah, a lot of chuckles. So we have oral medications. If oral medications don't work, we have external vacuum devices. Um, which you basically put the penis in, uh, pump it up manually, and then there's a small ring that holds the blood in there. Then we have shots in the penis called, uh, I use a lot of Trimix, not me personally, but uh, for my patients. Um, and that's an option. It's three vasodilators. Then we have penile implants. And then, of course, now we have shockwave therapy. Um, the idea of shockwave therapy is to stimulate again dilation of arteries um, so it's done typically done in six or twelve sessions um, and we deliver twelve thousand shock waves to the entire length of the penis so the penis actually goes down underneath the legs below the scrotum so i start down there and i uh, systematically deliver it takes me about fifteen or twenty minutes twelve thousand shocks to the penis it's ultrasonic but basically the machine fires what appears to be a small bullet and so it's basically creates sound waves um, and what that does is it results in the dilation of the current of the existing arteries and it creates new arterioles so it's called angiogenesis creation of new blood vessels and what I like to do is I like to assess a guy and try to figure out exactly where his erections are when he walks in the office you know does he have normal erections does he have success with oral agents does he struggle with oral agents does he have success with shots struggle with shots or does the guy really need a penile implant um, and I tell guys that shock waves can take people back one or two categories it's not a fix-all you know a guy who's had his bladder and his prostate out I can shock him a million times and it's probably not gonna work for him so I like to evaluate the patients and try to tailor it to make it appropriate for them um, it's been available in Europe for over 15 years. It's been something I've been doing for several months at this point, and I've actually seen very good results with it, um, actually better than I expected when I started doing it. Wow. Okay, so and that is the um, Gaines Wave treatment. Is that correct? That's or? correct. That's correct. Um, and th 
those are done, I do them once a week. Uh, can be done twice a week. Some providers will do it twice a week. Um, I think that's pretty labor intensive for the patients, and I, I, I actually like to physically do them myself um, so that I can make sure it's done properly. Um, and I don't, I don't have time to do it twice a week. Yeah, and I've noticed that about Gainswave. That whatever this means, it seems like most of the um, media portrays that a woman is doing it. That I've seen, so I don't know wha- what that means. You know, but it looks like they have someone that might be. Uh, yeah, you uh, you clarify that you do it yourself. I I think it's I think it's uh, number one. I think guys are going to be a little bit more comfortable with guys um, doing the treatments. Um, you know, I'll have a staff member, typically a male staff member, apply the numbing cream while I'm doing one of them, and I move the machine back and forth between two rooms. Um, typically, though, it's uh, I try to limit it just to guys. I think they feel more comfortable. Um, as far as who can do this, I mean, it's a handheld shockwave machine. Anybody can do it. I could train my 11-year-old son to do it if I really wanted to. Um, the way that I think of it, though, is it's a, it's a fairly expensive treatment. It's not covered by insurance. It's not covered by Medicare. And the way that I look at it is uh, certainly at least in the, in the first six months or year while I'm doing this, um, I feel like I want to make sure it's done properly so that I can have the best results so that I can translate that further down the line to tell new patients, hey, these are the results in my hands. These are going to be the results by the people that I have trained um, so rather than pass it off to somebody who is not quite as qualified, I choose to do it myself at this point. And um, the numbing cream, I was curious about that. What is this numbing so cream? It's a, it's a combination. It's a, it's a cream. It just looks like lotion, and it's a combination of xylocaine and prilocaine. Xylocaine is a short-acting numbing agent like you'd get at the dentist, and prilocaine is, lo- is long-acting, and I figured out how long-acting it was after I started this. You know, the guys would tell me they'd go to the gym six hours later, and everything was still numb, their ball sack and their, uh, their penis and everything was still numb. So... It's just to help with because there ends up being a slapping, um, and in fact sometimes I'll I'll get little cuts on the penis or uh, or the base of the the base of the penis or in the perineum where I'm doing the shock waves just from the machine itself. So it's it's better that they're a little bit numbed up because it's a tiny bit uncomfortable when you're not um, numbed up. Yeah, and then I get like so for me as let's say for myself, am I interested in getting this treatment? Like that, that's one thing that right off the bat, I'm like, I don't, the numbing cream, I'm not sure if I want to put numbing cream on my penis. And, um, it's not permanent. <laughs> I know, but I don't, I, I'm a bit of a purist when it comes to like what I put on my body. Yeah. So I'm like, do I want to put, I don't know what that numbing cream is. So, so. you know, the, the first question I would have for you would be, you know, I think it was more of a, do you want to test it to see what it feels like? I mean, that's how I took it was, you know that you're going to maybe want to come to the office and just have me put the machine on you. In that situation, I actually wouldn't put the numbing cream on you. I'd say, all right, let's fire it up, and I'd show you on your hand, I'd show you on your leg, and then I'd say, all right, do you want me to do any of this? Um, for you know a young guy like you, I mean, you look like you're not more than about 20. All right, now. Yeah, earlier, earlier you asked me if I was above <laughs> or below 40. 40. Well, that's like, because I had a physiologic uh, issue that I wanted to know about 40 now. So, no, I mean, younger guy like you, I mean, so if I, if we were having this conversation about, you know, where are your erections, you know, I, I would honestly, I'd be surprised to find out that yours was anything 
different than normal. You know, I think that a, a guy who comes in who is in your age category in the 35 to 45 range, and he was, you know, having to use a little bit of Viagra, he would be a, a guy who would maybe want to do shock waves so that he wouldn't have to use that anymore. And that would actually be a perfect setup for that guy. Yeah, that's why I, I want to open this conversation. I, I um, I, I haven't. I was like, I'm very curious if I want to do this or not. To me, I, like I said, this sounds like this biohacking for boner idea. <laughs> but for someone in the situation that is on a medication they don't want to be on, right? And you're listening to this, I trust you're going to look more into it. And that's right. And that's a guy that you can you know actually really help. I mean, I've got a few guys that are on shots right now, and they're actually. You know, and this is to my surprise, honestly, they're telling me that they're waking up with erections and one guy gets erections at work. And I'm like, that's way better than I expected, you know, for you, <laughs> for that for that particular person. Yeah, and it, it says that it's, it's designed for you. They, they, they have it designed for younger men that are looking to boost performance and prevent any unwanted, prevent un, any unwanted issues down the road. You know, so That's you have really to counsel patients and tell them, you know, what I like to tell guys is, you know, imagine that I can take your erections back to where they were five, maybe seven years ago. And then you will slowly dwindle back downhill because you're going to still age. You know, typically um, this, you know, kind of needs to be redone after two or three years. And I tell guys, look, if it works the first time, then it, it should work the second time. And we can go down this pathway again if you'd like to. Awesome. Awesome, well, man, uh, that is definitely the gains wave treatment. I am curious about. I saw that Ben Greenfield, who's definitely seems to treat himself like a optimal, uh, uh, like a guinea pig for optimization. He's been trying, and I saw Dave Asprey, who's someone that I spoke with at his bulletproof conference. Uh, so there's definitely some very influential people that are inspired to try it and share their results publicly. So it's a cool thing. Man, now we have all we've. I think we've covered the the gains wave. What I'm curious about is someone that's more just like I want to talk about men's health overall a bit, and what does our erectile function indicate? You know, so it, talking about we'll we'll split this into two subjects. You know, younger guys with erectile dysfunction is basically what it sounds like you're going down the pathway of, and then we'll talk about low testosterone. And what that means, uh, you know, when I see a guy with erectile dysfunction, the first thing that I need to think of is, you know, is there something else underlying this? Um, biggest concern when I see a younger guy is, does he have heart disease? Is this a sign of early heart disease? Um, because if we're having some, if we're if we're potentially having issues with the penile arteries, which are actually very tiny compared to the coronary arteries, is this an early sign of heart disease? So that's a guy that I ask about a family history of heart disease. I ask if any men have died suddenly of heart attacks in their 40s or 50s. Um, has he had cholesterol screening yet? And if not, then I do it myself. Uh, if I find things that are abnormal, I make sure he sees a primary doctor. I make sure he sees a cardiologist. Um, and most guys are very happy to do that uh, type of stuff if there's an issue. Um, even getting cardiac CT scans sometimes is a very good idea to see if they have calcifications in the arteries of their, uh, of their heart. Um, as far as, um, what does erectile function or dysfunction indicate, it can be an early sign of vascular disease, like I said, heart disease, vascular disease, etc. Testosterone, uh, you know, really when I see guys for testosterone, a lot of them do have uh, you know, concomitant uh, 
erectile dysfunction. Uh, but most of them will have fatigue is the biggest symptom that I see. Lack of desire for sex, loss of muscle mass, um, weaker erections, lack of morning erections like you noticed um, in your situation when you were the eating nothing but bananas. <laughs> I just want to see you grocery shopping with that. Um, always uh, the classic checkout scenario was yeah are you or what are you feeding a monkey and then i got to like preach about veganism on my high horse until (laughs) until like i would also say other symptoms i was having and i'm not sure if it was only testosterone probably like a thinning of my hair i thought my hair was getting thinner you know again yes i mean you you had a lack of protein I mean, you, you had a lack of, of you know, all you had was vegetable protein. I guess you were eating some soy. I, I was eating a lot of vegetables, a lot yeah. of vegetables. Just vegetables, I mean, yeah. Like smoothies. So it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if you started having, like, your hair was falling out. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I guess I'm trying to think, where were you getting protein And then my from? gum line. I felt like my gum line got receded. <laughs> and my scurvy? Te- and my teeth looked a little browner. <laughs> I was like, those were my shit, man. God, it sounds so healthy, man. You should I know, keep well, doing it. For the first three or four months, it was so healthy. And then all of a sudden, there's all these people following us and praising us online and like keep going and i'm like man and my I'm friends dying. are like are you okay daniel i'm dying <laughs> daniel's dead that was the old me had, i shed the skin of who i wasn't to become what i am you had scurvy <laughs> nah. that's crazy so it's interesting my parents owned several baskin robins when i was a kid and we used to go to the grocery store we'd run out of bananas for like the banana splits and that was the same thing we'd get cases of bananas like what do you have a monkey yep Two of them. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to back the car up. So same story. So anyway, low testosterone, those are the things that we see, the uh, fatigue, um, weaker erections, loss of muscle mass, um, sometimes depression as well. Um, uh, oftentimes guys will think that uh, fixing the testosterone will completely fix their erectile dysfunction. Sometimes it does. A lot of times they need other things. Um, again, the whole gamut of what I offer, oral agents, shockwaves, vacuum therapy, um, shots, implants, etc. Yeah. So if it's not a blood flow issue, what, what like if it's not a cardiovascular issue, what mm-hmm. is it? If, or, or a testosterone issue? Is it sometimes psychological? So, so like, no. It, well, so there's you know there's three types of erectile dysfunction. There is arterial dysfunction. There's venous leak, like we talked about uh, earlier. Or there's nerve disorders. Nerve disorders are going to be either from spinal cord injuries or uh, back injuries or pelvic surgery, like having your prostate removed. Uh, 30 to 40% of guys that have their prostate removed will have some form of erectile dysfunction. It might need just pills. They might need shock waves. They might need a vacuum pump. They might need an implant. It's everything in between. And then for myself, this has been, I think, one of the reasons I especially in the raw veganism is like thinking about ways to um, lower my cholesterol. I always, I always was concerned. I'm not sure how much of that was implanted for my parents or maybe how much of it's generational or what at the re I don't know exactly what the reality around that is. I, I feel better, especially erectile with eating lots of animal cholesterol. <laughs> but however, a concern has been what is my cholesterol, my blood levels, and what's the concern about that for my overall health? You know, the, the, the truth of the matter is, and cardiologists will tell you this, is that st- staying trim, and you're, you're in pretty good shape, um, staying trim is, is really the answer to that. And the, the, the way that people actually put on extra weight is sugar. And so by avoiding sugar, you have less fat, and then therefore your cholesterol ratios are much better. Um, people do the Atkins diet, which I think
think is a little bit dangerous because I think if you're eating a pound of bacon a day, it's a little bit on the on the much side. I think uh, a diet that has uh, 60 grams of animal type protein a day is actually good, um, whether that's eggs or fish or chicken or whatever, and you get to 60 grams pretty quick. You know, um, I think an egg has something like six or eight grams of protein in it. So if you had two eggs uh, for breakfast, you're almost a quarter of the way there. But, like, what about someone that might naturally run high in cholesterol? Now I'm curious, so like, we're talking now, about so test- now we talk testosterone. About, I'm like, maybe we should talk about, about cholesterol we talk about, and Well, and we talk compare. about genetics, too. I mean, most people with high, with high cholesterol is genetic. Um, like, I have, a, I have a terrible family history of heart disease. Um, no matter how skinny I get, no matter how much I exercise, my, my total cholesterol is, is well over 200. Um, I stopped my cholesterol medication. And I thought my co- cardiologist was going to have a heart attack himself. He's like, yeah, he's like, we need, we need these numbers to be better. You know, I'm somebody, too, who would love to not take any medications, but I know over the long run it's probably better for me to take a small dose of a cholesterol medication and stay in shape and watch what I eat and exercise as much as I can because there's a genetic, there's a genetic component to it, and it comes from both sides of my family. So are you so are you currently taking a small dosage of the okay and that's because not because of the lifestyle but you because you believe it's a genetic inheritance. Yes. Okay. Because I did I lost a bunch of weight. I got in really good shape, was doing triathlon training and my cholesterol was still well above 200. And is there anything that is there any way that shows up for you or or is it just strictly the numbers that they're showing from right the test? Right now. But not in 10 years or 20 years. You know, am I am I gonna be somebody who has erectile dysfunction, or am I gonna be like a lot of guys in my uh, family that have heart attacks when they're 55, 58 years old? Now, of course, I think I'm doing some of the uh, things that my grandfathers didn't do. You know, I think that I eat a lot differently than they did. I think that I exercise a little bit more, um, and I take cholesterol medication. Um, so I think I'm trying to avoid those things. That's an interesting topic because I know there's a lot from the field that I'm in, like a very whistleblower type of field. There's a lot of I'm, – I'm not clear on the cholesterol idea. I, I think, think people I th- have differing opinions I think that, that I both believe in. I think – you know, so the reason that cholesterol medication was made was for familial hypercholesterolemia. And that is – I mean – people with cholesterols in the 1,000, 1,200, 1,500 range, and they die of heart attacks in their 20s. I mean, it's, it's serious. So it was first made for them. Then what happened was is it got extrapolated uh, to, okay, well, if you've had a heart attack, then you should probably do this. Then it got extrapolated to, well, let's look at some people and see how they do if we drive their cholesterols down. I think it used to be made... A, a much bigger deal and that's when Lipitor was made by I think it was Pfizer and they you know everybody was on this I think it was overused and I agree with you um, so I think in certain settings it is good but most cardiologists still agree that certain parameters on paper um, are better than others and this is long term this is you know what I'm doing now when I'm 45 because that's how old I am is that going to change what happens when I'm 65 and 75? And I'm still a believer that the answer to that is yes, because I've done everything else that I can do. I'm, you know, I've I've gotten down to a weight that is, is, I haven't been this trim since I was a freshman in college, and it really hasn't changed my numbers to my liking.
Well, man, you seem pretty exper- like you seem like you're a, a good uh, patient for yourself. How have you gotten the most trim you've ever been? Uh, <laughs> diet, <laughs> diet. And what's been the diet change from what to what? <laughs> I cut out all sugar. You cut out all sugar. Cut out all sugar. It's actually another reason why I don't drink anymore. Is that's helped me keep the weight off. Um, so I eat as little sugar as possible. In fact, your banana diet, you know, we we refer to that as nature's candy bar. It's a ton of na- it's natural sugar, but it's still sugar. <laughs> and when you say we, are you prescribing to like a certain diet paradigm? Uh, I do. Um, you know, I think typically when I think the best diet that's around uh, currently is the is the ketosis diet. You know, basically where you take in a very, very small amount of carbohydrates and you put yourself into a situation where you burn fat. I don't think it's good long term. I think it's good to get to goal weights uh, because you're actually just taking off fat. And if you're taking in an adequate amount of protein, you don't lose any muscle in that situation. Then maintaining it a moderate amount of, uh, of carbohydrates. The average American takes in 300 to 400 grams of carbohydrates a day. That's across the board. The food pyramid, the FDA food pyramid, is actually upside down. They recommend, I think, seven servings of grain a day. Well, a piece of bread is just like two, t- two tablespoons of sugar. It's just sugar-laden. Everybody's diet is sugar-laden. 60% of the, um, of the United States is uh, obese. 30% of the United States is morbidly obese. Um, that's the real epidemic. Um, if, you, if you look at television, so you're... You're saying that you're blowing up conspiracy theories. Don't get me started on pharmaceutical companies <laughs> because look at TV. Watch any program right now, and you'll see the most adverti- the, the largest thing that's advertised on TV is, uh, is medications, um, especially diabetes medications. And in today's, soci- in today's med- medical society, unfortunately, we've become a pill society. Patients come in, and they want to know, is there a pill I can take for this? And sometimes the answer is yes, but it's not really fixing the underlying issue. Um, diabetes is a perfect example. Diabetes is, I mean, goodness, diabetes will kill way more people than, you know, HIV. It kills way more people than any cancer uh, that we see. Um, but it's kind of ignored. People just get more medications, whereas, honestly, the majority of them could become non-diabetic just simply by, you know, dropping down to a ideal or at least close to an ideal body weight. And uh, and so far, it sounds like you've had the best success with doing that by cutting out unnecessary sugar, basically. I mean, that's what I typically tell patients to do. Yeah, I hear. I mean, I I hear you. I I set them. I mean, I set them up on programs as well. So, again, uh, you know, if I have a 35-year-old gentleman that comes in to see me for my expertise in erectile dysfunction, and he's my height, five ten, and he weighs 350 pounds, and he's diabetic, hypertensive, hypercholesterolemic. You know, he's, I can fix his erections for him, but at the same time, you know, he, he probably will be dead before he's 50. And so I think the biggest thing that I can do for him is to try to help him uh, change his lifestyle and try to get him into a, a, a better situation overall. Yeah. I think it was, have you ever heard of Dr. Dean Pack? Paskowitz. He like traveled the world with his like huge family in a van to surf and do like free medical treatments. Have you heard this guy? I don't think so. I think I remember the. I think he has a, m- a movie out called Surfwise. <laughs> I think he's in heaven now, but he basically was saying that man's bi- like the book starts. The book slash movie starts out with man's biggest problem used to be having enough food. Man's biggest problem now is having way too much, too much food. food. Too much food, yeah. No, I I agree. I mean, and look, I f- I fell victim to it too. I mean, I was you know two hundred pounds, five ten. That did it, it didn't go well. 
Yeah, I was at a point where I was uh, over 200 pounds, and that was more this idea of gaining weight on purpose, but it didn't feel good. I had injuries. I, I, I put on too much weight, like yeah. trying to throw a fastball faster in baseball, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I had, and had a shoulder injury. I was so inflamed. Yeah. Man, I was like greasy. The whole yeah. thing was not necessary to eat that much. Is that when you did the banana diet? No, no, that no, was probably <laughs> my banana diet was to rec- my recovery. Was it? Okay, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's that's what I mean. Is yeah, you you, you yeah, came exactly. off of that, got yep. onto the banana diet. Yep. So you went from one extreme to another. Yep, exactly. And and, and find solitude and peace and rest in the middle. Man, is there anything else on your mind or heart that you would love to address while we have this huge topic of helping humanity through, like, helping themselves and not eat, overeating sugar? <laughs> That's such a big topic. We, we kind of got off a subject <laughs> yeah. there, but, it, I mean, it all intertwines. I mean, when you're talking about overall men's health, you have to look at all of this stuff. You can't just, you know, um, I've said it to a lot of my partners. I mean, we, we, we owe a responsibility to... Uh, to people when they come into our clinic that we have to be more than just urologists, more than just men's health experts, that you have to look at the entire body. Um, if it's not something that I can handle, it's something that I know some someone who can handle that uh, situation, whether they have sleep apnea, whether they have, you know, uh, weight problems, whether, you know, we diagnose them as diabetic. If we can help them lose weight, great. If we if we can't, then they need to see somebody that can help them with their diabetes, etc. It's an overall picture, um, so we can't lose uh, we can't lose sight of that. Yeah. Um, the diabetes, I do. I'm happy you brought that back up because that's something I wanted to ask you. Where does diabetes come from, in your opinion? I know there's different types. Like, what's your so there, I mean, golden thread of that? Well, there's type one and there's type two. Type one is insulin dependent, and that means that your pancreas just doesn't work. A lot of people are diagnosed as kids with that, and those are the you know, the kids in your class that give themselves insulin shots or or whatever. I think we all had a friend who was diabetic and. He'd go to a birthday party and the poor kid couldn't eat a piece of cake because he was diabetic or he'd have to load himself with insulin. So that's type 1. Type 2 is acquired later in life, and what it is, it's it's an insulin resistance. So your pancreas is making plenty of insulin, but peripherally, meaning in the rest of your body, your body's just not picking up on it. It's just not not working. And you, that insulin resistance is created from obesity. Um, It's from being overweight. And so that's actually a fixable diabetes. Um, so those things we see people on oral agents, when it gets really bad, they do have to give themselves some insulin as well. Um, but that's a, that's, a, that's a curable disease. It's a fixable disease simply by weight loss. And why do you, um, yeah, why do you think, uh, by the way, people overeat? Well, we have an excess. And I think, you know, there's different reasons for people to overeat. Um, I think if it's it's almost like drinking, you know, people drink to celebrate, people drink to commiserate. Same thing with food. If you're depressed, you eat. If you're happy, you eat. Um, you know, you it's a social event. You know, there's a there's a lot of things that are that go around uh, with eating. And do you think that so now you drink, eat? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Do you think the overeating and the over drinking is there a common underlying uh, thread in your opinion? Certainly, there can be. With you know, there's there's depression. There is, you know, there's there are ups and downs in everybody's lives. Um, there's a lot of pressures in today's world. Um, what is depression in your mind? What is depression? Well, the definition of depression is not being happy with your current situation. Um, it can be something that's genetic. It can be situational. It can be uh, you know, uh, altered by mood stabilizers or mood uh, 
altering substances, etc. So I think of, oftentimes I think that people want to make themselves feel different, whether it's better or worse or whatever. And I think that people will use beer or booze or marijuana or whatever to make themselves feel different because they're not happy with the way that they feel. And that's it. Hmm. <laughs> he has the I disagree with you. Yeah. Um. Well, I don't know if I disagree. I'm like, <laughs> that was definitely uh, an answer. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. I mean, like, how does – all right, so I, everything changes everything. Like you cracking your knuckles, that changes the way you feel. Sure, absolutely. So to say that people drink beer and marijuana or overeat to feel different. To feel better, to forget things that are going on to think about something different. You had a stressful day at work. You know, people want people want to go home after work and and have drinks. They want to do you know something but different. But people want to go to work, which is different. That's true. I mean, well, you have to pay the bills. <laughs> people want to pay bills, <laughs> which is different. Bills, which That's is different. different. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's 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 hard to say exactly what depression is because you have people, you know, what what is true happiness? I mean, you get into the de- definition of what is true happiness. And, you know, there, I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I have not. Okay. I don't so it's, it's a good read. It's a, it's a short read. It's only 150 pages, but it's about, it's a story about, uh, he was in a concentration camp, Nazi concentration camp. Oh, I've heard this guy reference so many. Now I and, understand why it sounds familiar. You know, those people who could not have possibly been in a worse life situation, f- they had no idea where their family members were. They had no idea if their families were still alive. They were in the most horrific conditions, freezing. They didn't have clothes. They didn't have food. They weren't fed. They were beaten. They were tortured. They, all these things. Yet they could still find things to be happy about. And so it's just, it's happiness is a state of mind. And I think that more, you know, that a lot of us lose sight of, you know, what is good in life and what isn't. And I think we get caught up in a lot of details. I think we get uh, caught up in a lot of politics. We get caught up in a lot of um, different things that make people angry. Um, whenever I start feeling a little sad, I pick that book up and I read it and I'm like, you know what? It's it basically what it boils down to is things could be so much worse. <laughs> things could be so much worse. Look at this situation. <laughs> so what is true happiness? And I have to check myself often, to be honest with you, and say, Boy, I've I got a lot of good stuff going on in my life. I've got a great wife. I've got two great kids. I've got a great career. I get to hang out with you. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll get to shock your wiener one day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I I hope that helps you with depression. I don't know, man. I feel like you're critiquing me. <laughs> oh yeah, no. I'm actually I'm like wanting to dive deep. I'm like realizing we're in 55 minutes. And I think we've talked. Uh, like we really talked about a lot of topics that are going to help a lot of people. And I just wanted to get more personal because I am inspired by you. And then also like personally, like I, I've used ganja beer to feel different, but along with many different things. And I am, I'm into that topic. I'm like, I'm into the topic of, and the, my grandparents survived the Holocaust by living under a graveyard. And here I am able to drink beer and smoke pot because of them, because they were able to, 
Man, choose something. They did something. They survived. Yeah, no, and I'm the same. I had a grandfather that escaped Russia on a cattle boat, and here I am talking to you. <laughs> if he hadn't, nope, <laughs> I wouldn't be here. And then how to do what we're doing best. How to do what we're doing best in the meantime. It's a big topic that um, I just, like, judge you to be a smart person. And, like, us coming from very different fields. So, me, I'm not I, critiquing, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I am. I, I just, I like, like wanting to dive deeper. Am I wrong? Daniel? I'm, like, looking at the creative constraint. I'm, like, man, I want to juice the most out <laughs> of this opportunity we have here for about another 10 to 1 minute to 15 to whatever it is. Yeah. Um. You know, I, th I think, you know, again, we have to, you know, we have to look at things, uh, ov overall picture and everything. You know, what I think the take home from me, from what I do on a daily basis is, and I, and I tell guys this every day, especially with erectile dysfunction, I know I can fix you. It's just a matter of with what, you know, whatever is going on with your penis, whether it's erect, just pure erectile dysfunction, if it's Peyronie's disease, it's something I've probably seen. It's probably something I've fixed. I just don't know exactly with what, but I will figure it out for you, and we'll figure it out together. And I think that's what actually gives guys the comfort because they know that I'm a one-stop shop and that it's fixable. Yeah, and what I hear from that is, like, you have dialed into your dharma, as some would say, or you... You're like getting paid for your passion. It seems like you are. Is was there? And I've one thing I've learned about a lot of teachers or masters is they've learned what they had to master. Was this a personal thing at one point, or how did like? Well, how did you? What how? What got you into urology? You know, interestingly, I'm I'm not a guy who like had a dad with prostate cancer or anything like that. I've I know some people who who had urologic issues or their family had urologic issues. I was exposed to it in med school. And I, heard, you know, we all had to do one week of it when we were third-year med students. Um, most of my friends and, you know, and classmates, you know, they would come off and be like, oh, my God, that was terrible. You know, it's just old guys. They can't pee, and they get droopy scrotums and all this stuff, and it's just awful. And, of course, I went and did it, and I was like, this is awesome. This is fantastic. I see men. I see women. I see different uh, things. I see kidney cancer, bladder cancer, prostate cancer, erectile dysfunction, low testosterone, you know, women, men, kids, you know, all these different things in this small system. You see clinic, you operate. I thought it was the perfect choice for me. Um, and I get to tell wiener jokes for the most part. Drives my wife crazy, you know. We've been in more than one restaurant where we're getting looked at funny because of my wiener jokes. <laughs> you know, a little loud at the uh, at the next table. Um, oh, man, on that note, yes. this is something we have maybe in common. I may have seen more penises than your average Joe, and you definitely have. Yeah. And mine are definitely in very shame, like uh, overcoming shameful situations. We've literally done exercises naked with men and women and men. To get them to overcome this story of them, oh, their penis. Like, if I, can you imagine if people talked about like their hand sizes? Like, oh my gosh, that guy's hand is so much bigger. Oh than yeah, so, that yeah. guy's that guy's like elbow is so yeah, much exactly. pointier than mine. Do you know? <laughs> do you think my wife's gonna leave me because his exactly because his nose is bigger is bigger than mine? <laughs> yeah, like you know, come on, his earlobes. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, we've done that work and. Uh, what do you think about that? What's where's that? Is that rooted? Do you have a, like I'm curious do you, with your personal opinion on that. Is that rooted in like some Freudian psychology or 
what is this about this penis comparison <laughs> craze? I, mean, I, th- I think it's it's a it's a it's a macho thing. I think it's something that some guys do when they're in high school. You know, who has the bigger penis? And then I think there's rumors that oh, women want a bigger penis, etc. And then honestly, I think it boils down to uh, I think it down boils down a lot to the porn industry. Um, so here's a question that I ask guys when I put implants in them. They lose a little bit of um, they lose a little bit of length when I put a an implant in them and sometimes it's about an inch which can be gained back by I like to use the uh, AMS LGX 700 little plug for Boston Scientific there sorry about that Um, but it's a stretchable device and so we can pick up some of that length and so I actually carry a ruler in my pocket I call it my trusty ruler and it stays in my pocket if I lose it I freak out (laughs) I have I used to have them in every room and everything like that so that I can measure it so I can show them how long it is uh, if we put an implant in them tomorrow um, a normal erection is uh, it will thin out and stretch. So you you know you'll walk around a certain length, but you're a lot uh, bigger. You've maybe heard the term showers and growers. There's guys that walk around and it's basically just fills up and it's hard. And then other guys walk around and their penis looks like it's two inches, but then when they get an erection, it's five or six or whatever. So showers and growers. Uh, so I ask every single guy that I'm going to put an implant in, and I'll ask you this question. What's the average Not size? Not because you're putting an implant. <laughs> Already put your implant in. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, he knows. He knows about the virus <laughs> in the mind, also known as ideas. And Because what's more powerful than an idea? I'm waiting for you. What's more powerful than So what were you going to ask me? Okay, so, uh, yeah, what's the, uh, what's the average uh, erect penis length for a white guy? I w- all right, for a white guy, I would guess 5.2 inches. Okay, a little high. Four, four and a half to five. Um, but it's shocking how many guys in my clinic say seven or eight. And I'm like, man, you, you've got to stop watching porn. Like, that's not, that's, that's ridiculous. Um, ridiculous. Pardon the pun. <laughs> pardon the urology pun. That's, ri- that's, ri- that's, <laughs> that's redonulous. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's, you know, so I think that there's, there's a lot of myths out there, you know, interestingly enough, and I've, I've. I've kind of pulled it both ways, you know, the, also the thought of, you know, uh, and this brings us back to our erectile dysfunction conversation, you know, my, my wife may leave me and I've, you know, if, if we can't fix this, my wife may leave me. So I've actually gone and I've, I've asked female employees, I've asked female patients, you know, would you leave your husband if they had erectile dysfunction? And more of them than I thought said, yeah, you know. I was unpleasantly surprised by that. I was like, oh, come on, you know, come on, your relationship's way more than that, you know. Uh, I mean, I've asked my wife, and she's like, no, as long as you kept making money, you'd be, we'd be great. I don't, <laughs> so, like, can you work with that? Yeah, okay, well, then never mind. No, you're fine. Oh, man. Can you pay the credit card bill? <laughs> now we can't tell what's real or comedic or whatever, which I love. So thanks for mixing the plot here. Yeah, the penis talk can go forever. Oh, yeah, I wanted to ask. Yeah, now that we're on, they're just making more fun of this because I love making fun of things that are hard. If they're hard, let's was make that, fun was that of that it. Yeah, that was okay. like See, I mean, that it's just, triple it's entendre. Just, it never, oh, man. Triple entendre. You're just bringing it from all directions. I'm going to I'm gonna promote you. You're going to be a junior urologist before this is all uh, You know, I was you pretty got the mad. Jokes, I took man. the MCATs. You, <laughs> did you really? Yeah, and then I stopped. And then I stopped. Yeah, you kind of you, you give up your 20s. 
That's that's what I tell people. I went and I spoke to the University of Texas Pre-Med Society, and I was like, you guys are about to give up your 20s. And a couple of them, I think, got up and, you know, left the room. I'm like, yeah, you're going to kind of give that away. You're just, you know, you're, you're going to be training during your 20s. You're in med school and residency. Yeah, many of my friends. I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for anything, though. I mean, I love what I do. I'm, I really do like what I do. I think Maybe the, all the training is what made you not want to trade it. That's true. That's triple tri- triple T's. I know. I adore alliterations as well. What's the biggest and smallest like you've ever seen? Um, goodness. Hmm. I mean, obviously, we we have conditions that are basically micro penis, where you know you'll see somebody in in their in their penis is no more than about an inch or so long. Um, would that be erect as well, or yeah? Well, I'll tell I, you. I'll tell you. Actually, a story. This is a weight loss and erectile dysfunction story. A gentleman that came to see me years ago for uh, for erectile dysfunction, and he he really needed an implant, and uh, he was a long-standing diabetic, and. So I was going to put an implant in him, and he says, you know, this is going to be the smallest penis that you've ever seen. And I was like, oh, no, come on, all the guys say that. And they pulls his pants down, and I'm like, oh, jeez, whoa. I mean, uh, no, it's, it's not that small. And it was, I mean, it was literally maybe three centimeters in length. So it was about an inch to an inch and a quarter, and that was it. And so I was thinking to myself, oh, my God, how am I going to get an implant in this guy? And I, I got an implant in him, and, and he, he actually did great. He, they were thrilled with it. It functioned fine. Then he went and lost 100 pounds. And every we, ha, we all have a suprapubic fat pad that takes over our, our penis, and every 25 pounds is a half an inch of penis. So he lost something like 125 pounds, and then his penis was like four inches long sticking out of him. That's it. Wow. That's so a way he's, to get he's like so to now, lose some weight. Come well, on. Well, it's another motivating factor. Uh, yeah. And I can actually show you pictures of some of the guys that lose weight and their penis had been swallowed up, and I fixed that some of that stuff too. Wow. Want to see those? Well, man, <laughs> you know, I, my penis is pulsing. I have to. I get a pee like a maniac, okay. and I, we can blame that on the beer. I'm just we look when you, when you when you said your penis is pulsing. I was just glad I was between you and the door, man. I was gonna run out of here. <laughs> I mean, I like you. I mean, you're cute, but, you know, not like that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this is so much fun. So much fun. Dr. Brian Kansas, Austin. How long have you been in Austin for now, you said? 13 years. This is my 13th year of practice. Austin's amazing, huh? It's been a fun place, you know. I mean, my wife uh, my wife grew up near Tyler. She went to, she actually went to A&M and went to UT San Antonio. I had never been to Austin, and we came and interviewed for jobs. And, you know, she's like, how about Austin? Why don't we live there? I'm like, okay, sounds good. I grew up in Louisiana, grew up in New Orleans, but, you know, I I love living here. It's a great place to raise kids, a great place to practice medicine. Texas is a great place to practice medicine. So you you really can't beat Austin. It's great. And everywhere you go, everybody wants to move here. That's uh, We need to to slow it down a little bit. The traffic is getting a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Although this wasn't too bad for me, uh, breaking normal enough. Well, I'm super stoked, man. And... um, I trust this is highly illuminating to many people. And that if someone's in Austin looking for a Gaines wave treatment, come on. Check out urologyaustin.com. Uh, my main phone number for my office is 512-231-1444. Happy to see you. Happy to help you. Absolutely. Don't don't waste any more time. Oh, I don't even I don't even believe in a waste of time. A waste of time, but that's another topic. <laughs>
That's actually a chapter in the Breaking Normal book. There is no such thing as a waste of time. And and just so you know, my don't lose any more time. My specialty is uh, getting, I would say, leaders to team up beyond beliefs. And I try, I like, I judge you to be someone that's good at that too. Like you have your passion, you have your belief, and you're still open to communicating and teaming up with people. Absolutely. Yeah. You can always I feel learn. that. You can I feel always that learn from something. You. I feel like yeah, the perpetual student. I, I learn something new every single day. Come on. You know, you can't. You just you 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 have to be an open book and or or act like a sponge and just sit there and absorb stuff and and keep an open mind and you know it's amazing what you can learn from other people if you just give them a little while to talk and listen to them. Mm. In that case, I bet this podcast was awesome. Thank you for breaking normal. Thanks, Dan. Peace. Bye. This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Wow, what a mind bender, huh? Whoa. Thank you, Doctor. And thank all of y'all, because you're doctors of your own life. You're the president of your own perception. Remember that um, if you don't take leadership of your life, someone else might. And it might be to their advantage and not necessarily yours. So rather than depending on being um, under a ploy of someone else's plan, start imagineering your own future. And I trust these podcasts are encouraging you to do that. And um, as a cherry on top, I'll share another sample of the Breaking Normal Audible book here feel free to give it a, a listen and go ahead and download it on Audible. And I'd love to see your reviews on this podcast and the book. And it's highly advantageous to the gods of the internet known as algorithms to share it, rate it, subscribe it. Come on, do all those good things. And uh, yeah, some, you know, the secret of living may be giving. So I'm, this is what I'm asking for without being attached to it, getting it. And I'd love to celebrate your review when I see it and feel free to reach out to me on Instagram or my website breakingnormal.com if you have a possibility or an idea to synergize or if you want to sponsor the podcast considering this was the first official sponsorship <sighs> big deal y'all it's a big deal following our dreams make it a priority keep breaking normal peace in real relationships are based on open curiosity rather than secret condemnation chapter 7 Team Daniel. I met my wife on a retreat in upstate New York. My brothers and I had hosted many retreats by then, and as the Raw Bras, we'd been posting videos to YouTube for a few years. Unbeknown to me, this young woman, Deanna Hansen, who lived in Denmark, a country I'd never been to, had been watching those videos. Like a lot of our fans, or so I imagine, her life was in a rut of some sort, and she was looking for that catalyst for freedom and change. She thought, judging from our videos, that we were ridiculous and crazy brothers who traveled all over and probably fooled around with a lot of girls. Nonetheless, some of the things we talked about didn't seem all that crazy. In fact, they seemed pretty accurate, pretty honest. Self-acceptance through self-expression, honoring yourself before the opinions and agendas of other people, and letting go of our attachment to destinations in favor of waking up to the dream of life unfolding now. These things resonated with her, and she could hear the truth of these messages through a lot of the otherwise crazy things we did. So after following us on social media for a few months, when the pain of action became less painful than that of inaction, she decided to reach out to us to ask about our next retreat. 
The cost alone almost stopped her from coming, along with the logistics of travel. Against the advice of many of her friends and family, who didn't understand the appeal of the Robras, she made it happen. In three days, she sold most of what she owned, packed up the rest, stored it at a friend's, and booked a ticket to Albany, New York. I'd hosted enough retreats by then to know that it's a good idea to delay making definite judgments about people based on their social media profiles, because I'd found that the way people presented themselves on Facebook was not always the same they appeared in real life. Sometimes I'd meet a guy or a girl at the airport, someone I'd emailed and checked out on Facebook, and hardly recognize them. With Deanna, that wasn't the case. I was attracted to her right away, and thanks to the context of our retreats, I didn't have to beat around the bush in expressing that attraction. Our first real talk was a confession. Within the course of a few hours, I had learned from her a version of the story of her life, the version she was most resistant to sharing. She received from me a similar version about my life, and the two of us were then free to share our judgments about the stories we heard. We didn't tell each other the things we wanted to say or the things we wanted to hear, we revealed the things about ourselves we didn't want each other to know about, the things we thought might sabotage any potential relationship we might have. I told her I didn't think she was marriage material because she wasn't a Christian, and she told me she couldn't stand the way I seemed to question everything. The moment before we confessed such judgments, I imagine we took them seriously, possibly as deal breakers. The moment after confessing them, however, we realized that our judgments divided us so long as they remained unexpressed, but that expressing them made us feel more deeply connected. The bridges we burned, so to speak, lit the way forward. We skipped what might have been months or even years of normal dating by allowing ourselves to be seen for who we are, raw, authentic, literally and metaphorically naked. Six months later, six divinely hectic, travel-filled months, I proposed to her on April Fool's Day. Those months were a real trial period, filled with road trips, long nights, fatigue, inspiration, differing schedules, missed connections that catalyzed other connections, and all the joy and stress that comes from embarking on a journey with a potential partner. I can't recommend travel enough as a way to test driving a new relationship, especially when you go to places and countries that neither of you have been to before. It gives you the opportunity to challenge each other and be challenged in each other's presence. It allows you to observe yourself through your partner's eyes as you react to new situations, and it allows you to observe your partner as he or she does the same. I got food poisoning in Peru and spent the night on and off the toilet too sick to even think about hiding my grossness from her. She drank too much one night and performed an in-person equivalent of drunk dialing, that is, face-to-face, -face, without the convenient distance afforded by a phone. Wanting to take care of each other and sit with each other in our hour of seeming desperation was a clue that we were committed to each other in more than a superficial way. The very next day after I proposed, we got married at the Orange County Courthouse in Southern California. I wore Vibram five fingers. She wore pink shorts and a tank top. Four years later, she and I are still together, still growing, still traveling together, literally and figuratively. We're on a permanent retreat with each other, a permanent holiday, living where we want to live and doing what we want to do. 
It's a grand adventure of life together, rather than a blind or reluctant adherence to a socially accepted itinerary of how a relationship should go. The only outcome we are almost attached to is co-creating a dream. It was late evening in Encinitas, California, and the lights in our living room made some spots glow brighter than others. From our computer in the corner, there came into the room the sound of chanting Buddhist monks, deep, resonant vibrations that filled the air around us. Deanna was on the couch, and I was beside her, the midwife in position between her legs. The two assistants moved about the room, making preparations. The tub in the center was filled with warm water, ready for us to get in. To this day, I can only imagine from the outside what Deanna was going through, what deep stores of energy she must have been tapping into as she went through labor. Like running a marathon after marathon. We were in the water. We were out of the water. Deanna was sweating one minute, cold the next. Most of the time, she remained in her trance, blacked out in a way, so focused on the things happening in her body that she had little attention left for anything else. Late in the evening, in the lamp-lit living room, there came a sort of crescendo, where everything rushed suddenly together. The chanting monks, the birthing tub, the midwife and two assistants, the windows separating the night outside. It wasn't lucidity, but overwhelming experience. The veil of life and death, pain and pleasure, was never thinner. At the moment Deanna surrendered, gave up, it seemed, Davina, our daughter, came through. Yes, we are co-creating a dream. The foundation of this real relationship is intimacy, which I think of as end to me, you see. It means direct communication about the things I do and I don't want to say, and a willingness to hear Deanna say things she does and doesn't want to say. This practice can apply to all relationships, not only the romantic kind. The coming chapters will present exercises by which we can hack the rat race of so-called regular relationships and transform them into real relationships. <laughs>